Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Maria Lemmer has a PhD in wireless communications and spent nearly seven years at King's College London as both a research associate and more recently as technical lead project manager responsible for technical operations in the 5G testbed in London. In 2018, she co-founded Weaver Labs, a Web3 startup, democratizing access to telecoms infrastructure with 5G and blockchain. Weaver Labs digitizes public assets such as street lamps, traffic lights, and bus shelters to build telecoms networks for smart cities and innovative supply chains. Weaver Labs also delivers cybersecurity architecture to cryptocurrency networks and works with companies such as Transport for Greater Manchester, Manchester Combined Authority, Datarella, and with projects also funded by UK 5G, the UK government and European Space Agency. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Maria Lemmer, hi, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Extrology podcast today. It's great to have you on as uh, my guest, and I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into some of the detail on a subject that, frankly, I think it's fair to say I know very little about, but I'm intrigued to find out more. But I think equally as importantly to find out uh, more about you and the story behind the story. And I think, as is customary with uh, with Extrology guests, I'd like to start with with the early years. So tell us, where did you grow up and, and what was childhood like for you? <laughs> so, hi everyone. I was born in Montevideo, Uruguay, 35 years ago. And yeah, I grew up there up until I was 14. My parents decided to move to Barcelona when I was 14. Best decision they ever made. There was a huge crisis in the year 2000 when Argentina had all these big crises, economic crises. And yeah, my parents, both working by themselves, my father, an entrepreneur as well, decided that it was a much better bet for their children to have them being raised in, in a European country rather than in, in South America. So we moved to Barcelona when I was 14. And I thank them every day since that day, <laughs> because I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I would continue my, my path in a tiny country in South America. Had, had you extended family or, or roots in Barcelona that, that meant that as a family, that's where you ended up? My father is Spanish, so there was a huge fleet of Spanish people in the Spanish Civil War, and my grandparents were one of them. And so my, my grandparents always kept, you know, giving us the, you know, the, the, the Spanish kind of legacy. And my father was always very close to the Spanish uh, culture and the, and the country. So it was not very difficult for my father to decide to grab our things and, and move into Spain. My grandparents are from Galicia. It's very, very, it was very, very underdeveloped at the time when we moved in was the year 2000. So Barcelona was kind of like a, a, a more kind of like a no-brainer, Barcelona, Madrid. And because we come from a seaside country, uh, Barcelona got oh, that extra point. <laughs> so we ended up living in this, in this little town in the, in the seashore in Barcelona. And, and how did you find the transition? Because I would imagine, you know, moving schools, for example, within a country aged 14 is, you know, when you've got friendship groups and you know, you're maturing and you've got all sorts of all sorts of dynamics going on um, in terms of your your growth and development as a human, let alone the you know uh, and the, the upheaval of, of moving country. It must have been quite a significant upheaval at that stage in your life. Definitely. I mean, I've, it was the first time, not the only time that I moved countries, but there is a substantial difference from when I emigrated when I was 14 or when I came to London. And it is that when I came to London, I made a decision by myself and I had a clear focus of what I wanted to get out of this. Whereas when my parents made the decision for me, it was very different on how to accept it. Although with time you look back and say it was definitely a good decision, it was hard and it is very hard to be, you know, as a teenager in a new country, 
we speak the same language, but kind of not because we don't really understand ourselves. Our accent is so, so strong. And the Spanish accent is so, so strong that it was difficult at the beginning to even get understanding people. Catalan was a different language for me, getting into a new school. I had gone to the same school since I was three until I moved to Spain. So it was a big shock. And I guess that's kind of like one of the things that my parents always taught me. It's just like, you know, shake it off and move on. And that's where, I mean, me and my brothers, we had to do that. And I think it kind of made us the people we are today, right? I mean, going through that process when, when you're so young and in a space of, or in a time of your life where you're shaping yourself as, a, as, a, as an adult, it definitely put some things into your radar that if you live in the same city, if you don't experience these things, they're not going to happen. But I can definitely say that the fact that I did not make the choice had an impact in, in me. And so who were your, your heroes? Who did you look up to as a child? That's a difficult question. <laughs> I would say uh, when I was a child, I always enjoyed literature. And I guess when I was a little kid, one of my favorite authors was Roald Dahl. All this, you know, imaginary world and uh, telling stories that had, you know, a, a lot of symbolism in, in, in life. But with this huge imagination, I, I enjoyed very much that. And having gone to an English school was very easy for me to be connected to that sort of literature. And then moving on when I was kind of like more of like a teenager, I always had this kind of like sense of I'm a rebel. So I started enjoying very much the likes of Orwell and he's kind of thinking of, you know, inequality society. So I definitely would say that he's one of my heroes. And, and what sort of other interests did you have as a child or indeed as a teenager? Oh, as a teenager. <laughs> I would say just like socializing <laughs> was a big part of my time as a teenager because maybe just because of the fact that I was living in a new country, I had to find my place there. That became a huge part of my time. It was just, you know, socializing. And I, I'm happy <laughs> because it made me the person that I am today and I can actually talk to a wide variety of people. Then moving on in my life, I found a lot more interest in, in traveling and uh, discovering new cultures, understanding that countries such as like Uruguay are a combination of different cultures and how enriched we are because of that. So I've traveled a lot since I was a teenager and sadly I can't do it as much now. And then I got the joy of outdoor sports and, uh, and sports now. So it's been quite a journey in terms of, of the things that I enjoy outside of work. <laughs> so how did you come to find yourself studying telecoms, engineering and systems at university? Came out of a laziness. <laughs> in all honesty, I would love to tell you that I had this, you know, career calling and that, you know, I, I really wanted to do this for a very, very long time. But the honest answer, it's something that was being taught next to where I lived. I was tired of commuting to school for hours. My parents always used to live very far away from where I was studying. So I had a university very close to where I lived and they were studying telecoms. My brother was doing telecoms and I kind of came up to him as, you enjoying this? And he was like, yeah, it's cool. Okay, cool. And it didn't have chemistry, which is something that I did not enjoy. So ticked all the boxes, went there, first day, electronics. And I'm like, what the heck is this? I don't even know. But yeah, like, you just shake it off, keep on doing it and learn how to love it. It's back to that message that you'd, uh, you'd gotten from your, your parents, I guess, shake it off and and move on. And, and, and had, I mean, you, we'll come on to the career that you've, um, you've developed since, but what was electronics from that early experience aside? What was it that sort of sparked that sense of actually there's something in this? This is something I could get really excited by. I could get really interested in. So I guess I always found very interesting systems and how systems operate and how something can respond to an input and you know give you different outputs and that can be in any like you know industrial engineering or even you know architecture every, everything at the end of the day can be treated as a system 
And throughout my university studies in Barcelona, I found it very interesting, all the physics behind telecoms. I did a lot of work in microwave and transmission of waves and antennas. And it is very abstract, but very real at the same time, because our phones communicate with antennas every day. And it is such an underlying thing for our lives that getting to understand how these things work and how we could make them better, it was really, really what hooked me into, into telecoms. And, and I'd read that you, as part of your studies, you completed an internship in, in mobile communications research. What do you feel you gained from, from that internship experience? And is it something, therefore, that you'd be encouraging others to do? So that internship was actually the beginning of everything. I had a professor named Silvia, and I was truly amazed by what she was teaching us. And it was about systems, uh, wireless systems. And I was doing an internship somewhere else. I, I always try to kind of keep my, my studies with some sort of work in the industry so I could keep it real at the same time. So I was doing an internship with HP and Agile and Technologies at that time. And I went up to Sylvia and I said to her, you know what? I want to work with you. I really don't, like, I don't care what, but I want to work with you. And she gave me this internship in the lab. And it was just basically a lot of programming and creating models of cities and how we could place antennas and phones and, and model how communications worked for that time 4G was being, you know, introduced into the market. So for me, it was, it was a great experience to understand how real life works with regards to what we were learning in the classroom. So I would definitely encourage everyone who's doing their bachelor's degree to find the time to do a little internship here and there because there is, there is a massive gap from what we learn in the classroom to work, how we apply that in actually the, our works. You, you continued your studies with a, a PhD in wireless communications alongside working as a research engineer in wireless comms and technologies. Had you a post-PhD plan? And if so, what might that have been? So, I mean... I started my PhD with an idea of my post-PhD plan, but that definitely changed throughout the years. When I started my PhD, I wanted to become more specialized in something. It was the year 2007 where the huge crisis had hit Europe. So I wasn't felt feeling like it was quite ready for me to go into the industry and just put my head down and work until I was 67. So I just wanted to enjoy a little bit more the, the joy of learning. And I felt that, that a PhD could, could give me that together with what I really liked was traveling and talking and meeting new people. That's, that was a, what, what a PhD was giving to me. And I always had the idea on the back of my mind that I wanted to become an entrepreneur or build something for myself. And I thought that a PhD would definitely be a good way of making connections and getting more specialized in the subject. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, and it, was, it was good, but at some point throughout this, that, this PhD, I got very frustrated because, well, a PhD is hard. You're doing research on the same subject for four years, and you really need to remind yourself all the time why you started such a difficult path. And around my third year of PhD, I was, I was ready to quit. I, w I really wanted to quit. And, and also, it's a terribly lonely career. You're just there by yourself doing your own research. There's no one you can even talk about it aside from your supervisor. So it's, mentally, it's very, very difficult. So I was ready to quit, and I talked to my supervisor, and he told me, hey, quitting is not an option, and let's try and find you something else to do. And that's how I ended up at King's College London. There I met, who, who was my, my supervisor there, a person completely different from what academic research is about, all about applied things. And I really resonated with that because I always want to see what I do applied onto something. I like building things and making them work and, and seeing that it actually has a good for society and an application in the real life. And, and that was my post plan after the PhD, but it actually came very naturally, you know, it was just a 
as a continuation of what I was doing more than a big plan I had. And I had. You mentioned um, perhaps as maybe part of that plan without wishing to put words in your mouth, but as I, I, I recall, that entrepreneurial instinct was starting to, to feed through and that you might have had plans to, to perhaps um, to pursue a career in business, start something up further down the line. Do you, where had that inspiration come from, do you recall? You mentioned your father, perhaps, for example, was, a, was an entrepreneur. Where had that sort of interest in entrepreneurship sprung from? To be honest, I don't know. But in my family, my brother is an entrepreneur. <laughs> I have my own business. And my younger brother it's also very, has a very entrepreneurial mindset, mindset. So I would attribute it to my parents, to the fact that they have always uh, taught us not to be to stay in the comfort zone and try and seek other ways of solving problems. And I cannot tell you what the difference is from being at a job in a large company because I've never been there. I went from academia straight on, on to Weaver Labs. But for me, it felt very natural. So I would attribute it to the way I was raised. Do you recall or when perhaps might you recall first developing an interest in business? So when I was doing my engineering studies... I did a master's in, in business for telecoms with some modules on entrepreneurship. And the way our master's was set out is that we had to do a big project. And what we did was we took um, a scientific idea from uh, a research team in, I, was, I think it was in the industrial engineering department, which was based on superconductors. And we looked for an application for that scientific idea, which was to save energy in elevators. And we had to create a business plan. We had to create a pitch and everything to make it ready to become a business, a viable business. And I really enjoyed the process of doing that. And yeah, I think at that point was when I said, I'm ready to do this in terms of this is what motivates me, but I'm not ready in terms of where do I think I should be on my scientific career? And that there is where I, I joined the PhD to fill on those gaps. So what was the, the inspiration behind Weaver Labs? So working at the lab at King's College London, for years I was just working on how do we bring telecoms into industries in order to generate value. So we were working with the healthcare industry, the transport industry, the, the arts, even the theatres, to understand how could a telecoms network solve their biggest headaches. And we worked with the entire telecoms industry and from the regulators to the equipment vendors to the mobile network operators and the users as well, right? So those theaters, hospitals, and so on and so forth. And I think that gave me a really good understanding of how the market was set out and the big questions that were being asked as the industry was uh, moving on to 5G and all these new disruptions that have happened. And then when we were working at the lab, I met three incredible people who are my co-founders, Anthony, James, and Alex, and they come from a completely different background from mine. So Anthony, it's an, an excellent software engineer, but a mathematician and cybersecurity person. James, economist and mathematician, and Alex, computer science and awesome programmer as well, very much in the context of blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, something that for me was, I did not even know what Bitcoin was in 2017. Shamely, I can say that. But I, honestly, I didn't. And they worked at the lab with me solving telecom problems. And of course, their mind was always working on like, how can we solve some of these inefficiencies that, that we are spotting out in, in, in these projects? And, and that's how we, we kind of came together, right? My, my knowledge on the telecoms industry, on the deep down the tech that, that belongs to the core elements of the telecoms side and their knowledge on the decentralized space, the crypto projects and the blockchain technology and how the two could come together and fix a supply chain problem, essentially. To people like me, if I, if I, I don't wish to categorize any of my listeners in this way, but certainly from my perspective, ill-educated when it comes to telecoms networks, I guess my, my initial thought, when you, when you talk about telecoms networks themselves, my first thought is as a consumer communication platform. So, you know, voice, uh, SMS, whatever the mechanism right, might be, how we communicate. But I guess if you extend that from a B2B perspective, you're talking about how systems communicate is that is that fair is that the sort of a is that, that's the the sphere in effect in which you're operating 
Yes. So we moved from having humans communicating through lines, fiber optics, or even like wireless communications using phones and all sorts of devices to having machines communicating and having absolutely everything connected to the internet. Wireless is ubiquitous and we expect everything to be connected and to communicate. And it's not only about us being more efficient in the work we do by using communications infrastructure, but it's also about us being able to rely on the devices that are connected to the network and help us, you know, build solutions. And an example of that can be a surgeon using a robot to operate a person. If that, that surgeon, when operates through a robot, it's no longer in the same operating theater as the patient. It's in the next, it's next door and that is wired. So essentially you already have a sort of communication between that master and slave device, right? So what happens if we put it a bit further away and a bit further away and a bit further away? How do we build networks that kind of like remove that limit of geography and make communications happen instantaneously wherever you are? So that is essentially where we are at in, in, in terms of what do we expect from telecoms infrastructure, what people expect and businesses expect. We are very far from making that a reality because the whole problem is that someone has to pay the bill. And that is the key element that we are facing now. And it's like, we want smart cities. We want, you know, all of our devices connected. We want instantaneous communication. We want this conversation to go well. But someone needs to lay down the cable, needs to give you the service, needs to get paid. But we don't want to pay a lot for that. So... <laughs> And, and I guess provide the security around it as well. And the security, it's a huge yeah. element, right? So we are now doing an installation in Manchester. And it's a 5G installation, but the, the whole purpose is to connect an AI-controlled you know, sensor that modifies however policies go into the traffic light system. Our partners, Vivacity Labs, they are, they're super smart people and have developed this product called Smart Junctions. So they can actually monitor traffic and enforce certain policies into traffic management. Imagine we create this network that is completely unsecure. You have vulnerabilities that are controlling your traffic lights. And, and, in, and in the case of the surgeon operating, it's a vulnerability on that surgeon operating. And imagine I'm having a middle attack or something. It's just... A lot to think about, but a lot to think about that us in the telecoms industry, we think about it a lot, Yeah. but whoever sits on the application layer, not so much. <laughs> no. And I guess that again, selfishly from a consumer perspective, we, you know, we, we almost don't notice these things until something breaks down, right? There's such a seamless part of our lives that they're so integral. If we look even over the last I mean, the thing that struck me about, um, about lockdown through COVID was that the technology that we've utilized over the last couple of years to stay connected to our to our families and our loved ones or our customers or our colleagues, whatever it might have been, that in principle has been there for quite some time in whatever format, but it's been available to us for some time. It's, it's exploded over the, you know, through almost circumstances, I feel, forced us down to, you know, to, and now as a consequence, I feel if I look at my own working day, I'm far more productive. I'm far more effective as a consequence of not spending half my life on trains, cars, buses, whatever it might be. I'm getting a lot more done, getting a lot more communication. But it's not until one of those platforms starts to break down or doesn't quite perform as I'm hoping it will perform, I start to then feel that frustration. But I guess for you, these sorts of challenges, they are ever present, aren't they? They're constantly, you're constantly being presented with how do we ensure, maintain connectivity? How do we ensure services don't drop out? These are all I'd imagine very, very complex challenges. And to your point, someone has to pay for them. Yeah. I mean, telecoms has become something like a utility. Yeah. The same way that you move into a new home, you open the tap and you expect water to come out of, uh, <laughs> of there. The same way it's the internet connectivity. We expect it to work and we expect it to be treated as a utility. However, the regulatory framework, it's not quite there in terms of treating it as a utility. And I think that is great. We need a market in expansion. We need competitiveness and we need more of 
telecoms infrastructure companies, not less as we treat them in utilities, right? Because wholesale providers, we know sometimes are, are, are also a problem and, and, and competition hinders the ability of, of providing a good service. But a bit before lockdown, the UK government had already looked into how to solve the inefficiencies of the connectivity market in, in the UK. And in an event of trying to make it more open and more competitive, trying to incentivize others to, to come into the supply chain and invest in telecoms infrastructure. And as a result, today we have a, a, a much more richer ecosystem where there, it's not only filled with incumbents, but also a set of new players that come and solve some of those inefficiencies. The consumer wants something to be treated as a utility, but the market works on a competitive basis. That is some sort of something that we need to make it match and always controlling prices and, and making sure that it's available for everyone. One of the big problems that we realized, it was there, but we had never had it so evident, was the digital divide and digital inclusion. And that became a problem when people had to study from home and they didn't have access to internet connectivity. Because if you don't have money to eat, why are you going to pay for an internet access? And we're discussing about, we were discussing about, you know, the lunch that these kids were having at school and how they would you know, continue to have these meals while in lockdown, imagine what it means for their education not having internet connectivity. Not only that, we are now talking about healthcare inclusion. If we are moving social carers from humans to machines, essentially not because we want to, it's because there is a lack of people who want to become a social carer. So we need to find a solution for that. Okay, let's use the internet of things. I've heard it's great. How do we get all these people connected? So there is an incredible project in Liverpool who is led by, by um, two ladies that I admire a lot. And they went on and, and created a 5G network publicly owned by the council and gave connectivity to all these people that needed social care at home because it was cheaper for them to do that than to, you know, lobby the big ones to go and get them connectivity there. So it's inclusion, a big problem that we have now seen. It's not about getting the connectivity and the tools. They have been there. I agree. It's just that not everyone has them. Mm. And, and that is on the, on the consumer side. But then when we talk about machines and all these cool use cases we want, it's a complete different story. It's just that the networks that we have are not fit for purpose. So, so what was the vision that you set out to achieve with, with Weaver Labs? So essentially tackling that problem of how do we make infrastructure get where it should get and meet the demands of the different stakeholders in the table. So for example, public sector has a definition of success very different from what a mobile network operator would have, right? One would have a commercial interest. We want to have return on investment. And the other one, the definition of success is the well-being of the citizens. So for one, it might not be commercially successful to deploy infrastructure in an area because of their metrics. So what we want to achieve with Weaver Labs is that regardless what your, your metric for success it is, that you're incentivized to go and deploy infrastructure. There are customers for different types of infrastructure owners that justify the investment. And if we define the market just by the metrics of just one large infrastructure owner, we're never going to get to the areas where we actually need that. So essentially what we do is we allow for different networks built by different players with different infrastructure owners to be integrated and be shared and be reused so we have a much more effective use of, of the resources. So in terms of how you got started, what were some of the bigger challenges that you that were presented to you in those early days and how perhaps did you overcome them? Funding. Funding, it's, it's a big one. Telecoms is not sexy enough. And a company with, you know, now I'm, I'm seeing crazy numbers with the metaverse and NFTs and all of that stuff. It's great that people are innovating in a lot of different areas. But at the end of the day, infrastructure and telecommunications, it's very niche, yeah. even though it's a trillion dollar industry worldwide. 
but it's still very niche. And venture capitalists, generalist venture capitalists, struggle to understand the value of innovating in this area. And while we have always been very successful within the telecoms sector to get people on board, to get projects and, and to get our product out there, it has been very challenging to get funding. Do you think, why is that? I was going to make an assumption, perhaps why I might feel that could be the Why do you think that is? Do you, has the innovation, is the perception that the innovation, the real innovation has already been done if we go back 20 years? Is that the feeling or what's, what's your view? The perception is that the telecoms industry, it's, it's not going to change and right. that what we are saying, it's never going to happen. But then we have clear points that it is happening. We are just riding a wave that exists. It's, we are not creating the wave. And that has been our, our most important blocker in terms of fundraising. It has been getting the VCs or, you know, institutional investment, always the understanding that this industry is onto something big, that we have a new paradigm being set right now. And there is there, there are huge benefits that can be ripped out of this, but we just need to get enough funding in into the telecoms industry. What have been the three most important things you've learned as a result of the business that you've grown to date? Resilience, discipline, and determination. And, and coming back to that, and I think that if, you, if I reflect on those three traits, you take that into the, the, the funding realm. Have your view as to what the answer might be in terms of tackling that problem? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge issue, I should imagine. But have you got a view in terms of how that could be addressed? What we did at that time, and I think it's starting to, to show the, the benefits, is that we need to be part of the educational process. And we shouldn't expect everyone to understand telecoms and its inefficiencies. We need from the telecom sector to work together to explain the rest of the world how if we are in a competitive market, we need people to invest in our technology so that we can actually help all these other technologies that are getting all these good investments. So we started a YouTube channel doing some fireside chats, bringing people on board that could, could tell us about the applications of their projects and how their applications would actually rely on telecoms infrastructure to actually succeed and trying to make this, you know, application meets infrastructure conversation. Having worked for so many years in building solutions for businesses you need to show the business, the value that telecoms brings. They are not going to respond for me saying like, oh, Wi-Fi, oh, 5G, no one cares about that. They just want to see the value. And that's where the conversation needs to, to, to go. And I think that from the telecoms industry, we are doing that quite successfully, to be honest. And I guess it's, it's also a change of mindset from the institutional investment and this is something that I have raised also with government, that it is important that we, as a community, are very well represented by the UK government and, and show that we are backed by them, because we are, and that that should be reflected into, into institutional investment coming in. I'm interested to talk a little bit more about the dynamics of co-founders. If I think, it, if I look at that entrepreneurial journey, you know, you, you know, it's well documented. You see those sort of single founders who then build teams around them. You have kind of co-founders in the typical two that come, you know, come as a pair, but to come as four. And, and you explain a little bit about the sort of different skills and, and expertise that each one of you have brought to the table. But what have you found to have been the benefits of working and the dynamics of, of working with a, a group of four, four of you as co-founders? I mean, personally, from, from my individual self, the benefits is that you have a team you know, it's not a duplet, it's a team. It's a well, you know, rounded team, four people, all our minds working together. So you never feel you're doing this alone. And all the the good things are together, but the bad things are together and and that's good. For from the business perspective, I think it's really good to have large founding teams and also have not, not only from, from the founder perspective and who owns the equity, but also large founding teams that kind of like kickstart the business and make everyone involved in that process, essentially because you get so many different points of view. And I am not right 100% of the times, and none of my co-founders are right 100% of the times. But what I am very proud of is that we always get together and say to each other even the difficult things or the good things and try and solve the problem together, put our heads together and solve the problem together. 
having very different backgrounds and being very different people as we are, that definitely has taken us where we are now. And I wouldn't change that. We did have discussions with some venture capitalists that, you know, we are such a large founding team and that's not normal. Well, I think it should become normal. Mm. I think, I think there should be more of, of what we do and less of solo founders or small founding teams because building a startup is hard and the team should be incentivized to stay. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you make because you you know we hear these you know the, the stories again are well documented as to you know funding investing in 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 the founder you know the sort of charismatic front person who's who's started the business but but actually I would argue that possibly from a risk perspective that you're investing in four not one it's spreading that risk and, and you're combining the your combined brain power that the four of you bring to some of the complex problems that you're tackling arguably is greatly enhanced. I should imagine it's a, it's a really compelling proposition, but you, to your point, you, you've had a little bit, bit of pushback and people arguing that there's, that's not, that's not necessarily the case perhaps. Yeah. I agree with the point of like reducing the risk. Then the counter argument that would come from institutional investment, it's like, yeah, but the friction within the founding team, it's more, but I would counter argue that and say that, but you at least have always someone in the team that would act impartially and could help. One of the things that I think for us has been clearly different from every other founding team that I have seen is that we are friends before being founders. And also we did not want to do anything else but this. We have had times that this was very difficult and building a business is hard. And at no point any of us said, you know what, I'm just going to get a job in industry and that's it. So knowing that someone has your back in the same way that you have their back, it's, it's really important to keep you motivated and going. And from our side, that's, that's something that, that, that it has definitely contributed to the success of the company today because we just wanted to do this together, whatever this is. Was there a, a eureka moment, if you like, that you thought, hey, we're onto something? Was there a moment at which you thought, actually, this is, you know, we can see that we'll accelerate beyond this point? I mean, we always had very clear mind of what we wanted to do, which is decentralize the telecom supply chain and make a product that allows telecoms assets to be integrated and, and operated without any central control. However, as we saw the industry moving towards disaggregation and, you know, Amazon saying, oh, now I'm interested in telecoms. Google saying, now I'm interested in telecoms. All these different players coming in, we said, oh my God, like our product is so good for everything that it's going on in the telecoms industry that it just, we just kept going. And when we started the Smart Junctions 5G project in 2020, it's where we actually got really ingrained into the 5G ecosystem in the UK. And that only gave us more proof points that public sector was willing to invest in infrastructure, neutral hosts were just rising, and that the number of infrastructure owners was going to rise. And at some point, someone will need something to put it together, and that's us. And so therefore, what excites you about the future for Weaver Labs? I mean, disrupting the telecoms industry for me, it's something that it's definitely something that excites me. I think we're onto something and the, the telecoms industry is working together on to, to making that, that, that disruption and being part of the journey. It's, it's very exciting. So what is it that you hope to achieve? Well, I mean, I would really like Cellstack to be the go-to open marketplace for telecoms assets. And when you have, when you go into a city, that connectivity, it's given to you via our network. So, so, so what are the, the, the developments in technology that you're really excited by in the, in the broader sphere? And perhaps maybe not just simply, say just simply, it's such a huge market, but telecoms, but in the wider technology, the array of technological applications that we can enjoy today, what really excites you? Well, I guess quantum, quantum communications, it is something that really excites me. There's so little that we know of yet and that can definitely disrupt the space. For, for the benefit of, 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 frankly, I was going to say for the benefit of listeners, let's be really clear. For the benefit of me, what's, what's, <laughs> what's quantum communications? 
Well, essentially, it's, it's, it's a different physics, right? So right now we are transmitting either using light photons or electrons using uh, electricity impulses. But now when we move into quantum, we just use quantum particles to, to, and, and how we excite those particles. And there are elements of transmission that are different and follow a different physics than the ones that we are used to now with fiber optics or cable or even wireless. So would that therefore mean that the implications of which would mean the what we can transmit, the pace at which we can transmit it, the volume, if you like, the band, probably bandwidth is the entirely wrong word, but the, the, I guess how much stuff we can send out becomes infinitely more possible using quantum telecommunications. Yes. Um, That's a very security. crude analysis. I apologize. No, 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 you're absolutely right. It is how we transmit the security behind our communications and also the latency, right? From when I transmit something, when it's received at the very end, it's also another element. I mean, I'm no expert on quantum communications at all. It's just that something that I think it can actually disrupt the industry. Let's see where it goes. And there's a lot of good research being done in the space. So yeah, let's see. How do you keep on top of all the development? Because technology is, whatever sphere of technology in which you find yourself, it's, it's moving at such an incredible rate. How do you, you're running a company, you've got a, a, a huge amount of responsibility in a world that is evolving in itself at a rapid rate. How do you keep on top of the, the pace of change and developments that are, that are, are occurring? Oh, and I think I only got like 10% of what's going on in the world, right? But being ingrained in the tech ecosystem definitely helps. You know, it's like you go to events, people talk about their stuff, you talk to other founders. From where we sit in the supply chain, right, we provide connectivity to a whole lot of services. So we need to understand what's going on in the industry and and also out of interest. So who has been the greatest influence on your career and why? I don't think I have one, <laughs> one influence. I, I get motivation from different, different people, different things that happen to me. And, and I guess my career is a result of, of a combination of, of that. So what drives you? I like to build things and see them working. Actually, that drives me. <laughs> Simple, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and therefore, coming on to that, I guess, back to almost that sort of interesting, but in terms of who you admire, whether that be from a business or societal perspective, cultural perspective, who, who do you admire? I have a huge admiration for elite sports people because they understand that there is no overnight success. There's incremental success. There is working hard. If you show up, you get the results. If you don't, you don't. That is something that I try to apply every day into my life and in my professional life. It's if you show up, you get to improve yourself. If not, you don't. And the same way that for you to do a pull-up, first day you're not going to be able to, but if you continue to work on it, eventually you will. It's what I, I try to apply onto my business and, and, and my life, essentially. And elite sports athletes, face the fact that they have a very short lifetime to, to develop their strength and their abilities in that particular sport. And they give up on everything. And there is such a strong discipline for them to achieve. They give up on so much stuff just to get that, that goal. And every decision they make would, be, would influence that. And I think that the level of focus and discipline, it's often not you know, awarded to them. And sometimes we award it to business people, right? He's so determined or she's so focused. And look at these people, right? <laughs> They're doing it every day. <laughs> so what, what does success mean to you? Is it of itself that showing up is part of the success? What, what, is, what does success mean to you? I guess, yes. Being able to show up, being able to stay focused and to continue the work. That, that to me is success. And then eventually good work speaks for itself and the results come. And I think I'm... We may have answered this possibly with your reference to elite sports people, but I might argue who who or what inspires you. Yeah, I guess, I mean, a lot again, right? So I get a lot of inspiration through, you know, typical leadership business people or even in my own family, I get very inspired by my own brother running his business with more than 500 employees. 
sports. I mean, the, the community that I have in the local gym that I go, it's, it's incredible. And you see people just working hard every day to be better and better at that sport. My co-founders inspire me every day. So it's, it's a combination as well. So you mentioned on a couple of occasions, even going back to the beginning, sports have, have played a part in your life. I, I'm always intrigued just to away from work, how you unwind, given the demands that running a business will place upon you. How, how do you unwind? How do you relax? Definitely the sports. It's what, what sports, what sports do you play? I do CrossFit for the last two years. I started on fitness when I was in university as a way to unwind. You know, it, it, it was the only time that my head would just stop. And then I started CrossFit and there's a huge community and it's, it, it's competitive, which is something that I need. I need for me to be proving that I am actually progressing on the sport. So that definitely calls my attention. Did you compete with yourself as much as you might compete with others? Are you one of those that, you know, whatever lift you did last time you were in the gym, you have to lift one more this time. Is that that kind of natural instinct part of who you are? Yeah, so CrossFit is, is set out in a way that you compete with yourself all the time, but also there are competitions that are quite easily to, to access. And our coach is always pushing us to do competitions, so I kind of did some of those at some point, yes. I guess with the thing that struck me, I've, I've interviewed one or two, I know one or two CrossFitters, is the, to your point, the sense of community and that kind of shared purpose that becomes very inspiring you surround yourself with people who are of themselves trying to make improvements step changes in their own physicality or fitness or life or whatever emotional fitness whatever it might be but that in itself is is similarly i guess with your co-founders different goal but you're you're constantly striving to push each other and and to achieve exactly yeah i think that that's one of the biggest things that crossfit has taught me it's like stay humble Everyone here is for a very different reason and just like leave your ego outside of the box and start here from scratch. And to be honest, even like I see people that has been there doing it for years and they still struggle to get one movement, you know, and they but just keep working on it, keep working on it and eventually it will come out and the sense of community is just great. I was really intrigued as, as well as to your point from the at the beginning of our conversation around childhood and you mentioned Dahl, Roald Dahl and you mentioned Orwell and, and literature, busy life, CrossFit, business, <laughs> events and all of that would entail. Do you still read? And if so, what are you reading currently? Well, currently I'm reading uh, two books. <laughs> One, it's about, it's written actually by a CrossFit athlete, uh, Matt Fraser, that it's called Hard Work Pays Off. And yeah, it's about his, he just recently quit CrossFit as an elite athlete and started, you know, um, another business and he wrote this book and it's quite interesting. And then I'm reading another one about feminism and how it has evolved in the, since, I don't know, 1500s or ever since women started talking about feminism. Do you, and you still enjoy reading. Do you, do you find that as a way to unwind or, actually, or do you find it stimulates? I would imagine reading the books to which you refer that of themselves, hugely, huge stimulus behind those, behind that sort of reading. Yeah. For me, reading is a way of learning. And I mean, I enjoy so much learning that I spent 10 years in university. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I still look for that when finding things to read. And I read a lot of philosophy as well. And yeah, just getting to understand better human behavior, I think is something that always interests me always. Also from the position where I am at, that I have to engage with a lot of different people and trying to understand where they're coming from and how they're so different from how I would handle things. But giving me that sense of understanding uh, and how to read people better, it's just, yeah, trying to understand them. It's something that I enjoy about reading as well. So looking back, what advice would you give 21-year-old you? 21? A party less, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but then looking back, maybe not, because you won't have time to party that much. Yes. Yeah, get, maybe be more serious about your career, because it will become very serious at some point. Because I wasn't up until like 27. I was just there doing my PhD and my studies and just you know, cruising through life. But I, I think I might, playing devil's advocate here, Maria, I, I think actually 
it does become very serious at times. So had you missed out on that opportunity to party or whatever it might, actually you do, there has to be, we started off pre this recording, didn't we, talking about balance. There has to be this, there has to be the yin and the yang. There has to be something to offset what can be incredibly intense, incredibly demanding, enormous, yes, highs, but many lows through the, through the journey of, of, of starting a business and, and seeing it evolve. So I guess, is that, is that fair? Maybe the parting was a good thing. It gives you the foundation uh, and it, you're an inherent, we're all some of our parts, aren't we? So it, it gives you the person that you are today. But no, I think that's, that's really interesting. So what does the future look like for you? Well, I would love to see uh, Weaver Labs product sales stack to get into adoption and, you know, still working with the team into, into getting into that commercial success. So I guess that that's the only future I can think of right now. And, and where can people go to find out more about Weaver Labs, about you? Where can we point them? What direction can we send them to? We have our website and then we have, uh, we're very active on our social media, LinkedIn and Twitter. So definitely there to keep up, you know, with our updates. We post very regularly. We share a lot of insights because of what I said, right? Just educating people about what we do, not only what we do, but what the telecoms industry is up to. And we we do have weekly themes. So every week we kind of like post insights about different areas that are of interest for us and our community. So we try to be kind of like a learning feed for everyone that you can get not only what we do, but also how, how we influence other sectors. Maria, it's a, it's a fascinating story. I could talk and learn more about it for hours, but I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. Thank you for sharing with us uh, your journey so far. It's, um, I'm sure there's a great deal more to come. Uh, and I know that uh, I speak on behalf of listeners when I say that we look forward to seeing Weaver Labs continue to soar and you continue to flourish as a consequence. So my very best for your continued success and uh, my thanks for your time today on the Extrology podcast. Thank you, Lee, for having me. It's been a real pleasure and I enjoyed very much our chat. Fantastic. All the best for the future. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.